Welcome investors to the Absolute Return Podcast, your source for stock market analysis, global macro musings, and hedge fund investment strategies. Your hosts, Julian Klamotko and Michael Kesslering, aim to bring you the knowledge and analysis you need to become a more intelligent and wealthier investor. This episode is brought to you by Accelerate Financial Technologies. Accelerate, because performance matters. Find out more at accelerateshares.com. Welcome, ladies and gents, to the Absolute Return Podcast. I'm your host, Julian Klamachko. I'm joined by my co-host, Mike Kesslering. And on today's podcast, we welcome special guest, Fiscal Note CEO, Tim Wang. Fiscal Note is a leading AI-driven enterprise SaaS company that delivers legal and regulatory data and insights. On the show, Tim discusses why being the category creator is important, how he raised seed capital from investor Mark Cuban, what made the merger with SPAC Duddle Street acquisition so unique, the company's M&A strategy, and more. A point of disclosure, the Accelerate Arbitrage Fund ETF does hold shares of SPAC Duddle Street acquisition. So with no further ado, here's our podcast with Fiscal Note CEO Tim Wang. All right, we are live with Tim from Fiscal Note, which is about to be a brand new public company. So prior to getting into the weeds on the business model, Tim, I'd like you to walk us through exactly what Fiscal Note is. Specifically, what was the idea behind its founding and what's the company's mission? Yeah, well, it's great to be on. Uh, You know, so it really Fiscal Note was born out of my two interests in technology and politics. Uh, for those of you who don't know, I actually start off my career actually in politics, very far afield from the worlds of uh, finance and technology, and you know, start off my career working for uh, then Senator Obama as he was running for president uh, back in 2008. Um, very interesting campaign, uh, obviously using a lot of technology, a lot of data um, information to be able to, of course, run a major presidential election. Um, and then I did something really crazy after that, and I ended up running for office. So. Uh, ran for uh, the Board of Education in Montgomery County, Maryland, uh, the largest district in the state of Maryland, uh, over a million residents, uh, almost 200,000 students, uh, $2.5 billion budget uh, for you know 20,000 teachers. I got elected uh, after that election at the age of 17. Uh, much of my people actually voted for me. And so uh, <laughs> I really got the rough and tumble of politics all the way from you know presidential politics down to uh, you know local and state politics. And one of the things that you really uh, appreciate when you're in politics is just how disorganized everything is. Everyone's trying to stay on top of, you know, what everybody else is doing. Um, you have people in the White House whose very job is to track what every member of Congress is saying and you know what they're proposing and all like all these different things. And you can imagine, you know, let's say that you're uh, on the school board, uh, you're on the board of education somewhere, and you know you have these regulations that are coming down from um, the Department of Education uh, in D.C. Um, from your state department of education, from your city council, from your uh, general assembly, whatever it is, and just the the monstrous amount of regulations it is to operate a government body is is insane. And so, um, one of the kind of insights that I had actually when I was in government was, um, you know, oftentimes we'd sort of ask ourselves, well, what is the law for this? What is the law for that? And uh, I remember we were debating once the minimum wage laws, and I remember just thinking to myself, um, you know, everyone was debating what the minimum wage law is, you know, how it's determined, and all these different things. And you know, if you're sitting in government and you don't even know what the laws that you're trying to govern by are, you know, how do you expect the private sector to actually understand those regulations as well? So, you know, if uh, you're trying to monitor 
uh, laws and regulations, um, you know, in labor or sustainability or data privacy or whatnot, you've got a hodgepodge of regulators and, and members of Congress and you know, state lawmakers and city council members to comply with. And so um, that was really the genesis for the idea. Uh, you know, I'd studied computer science and politics at Princeton, uh, was actually starting my MBA over at HBS, or Harvard Business School, and um, decided to drop out to really pursue this idea of bringing together, uh, uh, you know, laws and, and regulation in a technology context. And I guess just to get into fiscal note, um, you know, really, uh, we decided to build a company that aggregates laws and regulations and legislation and statutes from around the world, and then build essentially a Bloomberg-like terminal where instead of looking up uh, equities and fixed income and you know commodities and whatnot, you could look up individual laws, individual regulations in any country on the planet, and the ability to instantaneously have that on your fingertips, uh, we felt like would be transformative in changing the relationship between the private sector and the public sector and fundamentally helping people to navigate um, you know, government uh, regulatory uncertainty. So getting into the weeds on how the business actually works, you're collecting and analyzing just vast amounts of publicly available government information, enabling your customers better navigation of uncertainty, opportunity, and risk. But how practically do you do that? Is it uh, a lot of artificial intelligence and machine learning? Is it a bunch of you know manual just going through different documents from a human's perspective, or is it a combination of both? So we use a lot of automation and artificial intelligence in our tools to be able to really collect, process, classify, you know, summarize, uh, make searchable all this information. You know, it used to be, um, you know, uh, 100 or 200 years ago, um, there, I mean, there, there is an existing legal information and legal content industry, right? That you would have, you know, thousands of employees sitting in Minneapolis or, you know, these days in emerging markets like the Philippines or Pakistan or whatnot. We're really trying to make sense of this. And I think that a lot of the innovation that we brought to market was really combining cutting edge artificial intelligence, uh, text processing, natural language processing to collecting um, data from multiple different countries around the world and multiple different languages, and then being able to stick that into a software platform that people could access. And um, one of the analogies that I always use is that, you know, in on Wall Street, um, you know, pre, you know, 1940s, 1950s, you know, you would have people, you know, uh, using pencil and paper effectively, you know, writing individual prices. And before that, they would have the big chalkboards where they would write the stock prices, you know, on, on, at the exchanges and the like. And then eventually we saw a movement towards, uh, you know, digitalization and use of technology and, and artificial intelligence. You know, I think we're seeing that in the government and, and legal spaces today where, you know, it wasn't maybe chalkboards, but now, you know, paper books and, uh, a lot of, you know, who knows who and, you know, can I call this lawyer or that lawyer and game of telephone, really translating that into real actionable intelligence for laws and regulations. One thing I noticed that really popped out to me in the investor presentation of materials is the notion of fiscal note as category creator. Why is that important for investors? Well, I think that, um, you know, being a category creator uh, affords a lot of different opportunities, right? You have the ability to um, really set the standards for um, how you define uh, new software capabilities, uh, uh, terminology around, uh, you know, expectations uh, for individual customers. Um, and then you really kind of lead the market with innovation. And, you know, this is something I tell product managers in, inside our company all the time. But, you know, you can have the best balance sheet. You can have an amazing culture, um, you know, blah, 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 blah. But ultimately, business is very simple. 
building a great product for your customers that they purchase over and over and over again. I don't care if you sell cars, or hamburgers, or enterprise software, you have to build great products for customers. So I think that in our case, being a category creator means that we are pioneering this market. Uh, we're pushing the boundaries of what's possible in terms of collecting laws and regulations. We're, co- we're pushing the boundaries in terms of um, uh, the use of artificial intelligence and law, the automation of law. Um, the, and we're now expanding into uh, you know, uh, enterprise software, so things like cloud-based software that other legal departments are using, and pioneering uh, uh, the, 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 the next question of not only what's going on in laws and regulations, but what do we do about it, right? And so um, in, in uh, fields as far field as ESG or data privacy or cryptocurrencies, or cannabis, or you know, uh, on gig economy, we're now pioneering entire new software categories um, in these spaces to be able to leverage the data and platform that we have, um, and really build innovative products on top of that. Now, with respect to the company's business model, you describe it as the Bloomberg of government information. So, I assume you have a subscription service, and you know, can you talk about the uh, the business model, how you guys make money, and also some examples of perhaps some of your larger customers. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. So uh, we are a subscription business uh, primarily, and basically our customers subscribe to our platform where they can purchase information feeds or uh, individual user licenses. Um, So the primary ways in which we increase uh, our customer base is they can either um, add more users onto the platform, um, and that's where the continuous innovation around new software modules is important, um, or they can buy more data sets, right? So if you want to purchase you know, Japanese regulations or Mexican court cases or Australian legislation, we'll essentially upsell you incremental data sets. And you know, for those who you know, effectively use Bloomberg or Affinitiv or CapIQ or FactSet or Morningstar, you know, I think people are very familiar with this business model. Uh, you know, I think when it comes to um, you know, in- incremental opportunities that we see, um, you know, it's really the way in which we invest our R&D resources comes down to, um, can we add incremental data sets that our customers are looking for? And can we in- incrementally build, let's say, an ESG module um, that basically enables our customers to look up ESG regulations and then comply with those regulations on an individual software module, right? So that continues the expansion of our software uh, over time. You know, we, we power over 3,000 customers today. Um, we have a large number of customers in a diverse range of, of industries. You know, we have, for instance, a number of uh, government customers, uh, you know, Department of Defense, uh, large chunks of the U.S. military, uh, intelligence agencies, uh, Federal Reserve, the White House, uh, every member of the House, and the Senate, and Congress, uh, you know, all currently using fiscal note, you know, in, in their case, trying to secure government budgets, uh, you know, from the appropriations process every year. We have uh, over half the Fortune uh, 100 currently using the platform. So customers like, um, you know, 3M or AstraZeneca, um, you know, large uh, individual businesses and in, in, in a number of fields from healthcare, financial services, technology, uh, oil and gas, these regulated sectors um, that are really using our platforms to monitor regulatory activity for their individual companies. Could you add a little bit further context with regards to the unit economics uh, that each customer will have in terms of uh, the profitability of that customer and what it costs to acquire each each of them and, and kind of how, how large you're seeing this market can, can grow to? Yeah, so I think in our most recent reportable quarter, we had uh, LTV to CAC ratios of just over four, uh, which basically demonstrates that we have very healthy unit economics, but uh, at least in terms of customer acquisition. 
Um, you know, we, uh, I will say that we are a data software subscription business, which essentially means that, uh, you know, we build it once and we sell it over and over and over again. So, uh, you know, we have very, very uh, high gross margins that effectively enable us to be able to invest in uh, continuous growth, sales and marketing, R&D uh, to drive the growth of the business. You know, I think as we add, for instance, a new data set, um, you know, we can build uh, a new capability, you know, fairly quickly. And then we can bring that to market by cross-selling and upselling our customers on a consistent basis. So um, our R&D process really revolves around the ability to identify a market opportunity in, in the form of a new data set or a new workflow capability, you know, say it's a, a cannabis regulations or something, and then be able to go after a number of customers in that, in that category. Uh, in terms of, you know, the way that we think about uh, the market opportunity, as I mentioned, you know, uh, the legal information, legal content, legal analysis space is about a $37 billion market. Um, and to put that in context, um, the financial data vendor market, you know, of which, you know, CapIQ, uh, S&P, uh, IHS market and whatnot are part of is about roughly the same size. Um, so um, you have uh, a large number of players that are in the space, uh, but this is a fairly fragmented market, um, which means that we see a very big opportunity to both uh, create the market leader, but also consolidate a large number of players in the public market, which is uh, also a very large growth strategy of ours as we as we can enter into the uh, our new life as a public traded entity. And now a word from our sponsor, Accelerate. Do you want to diversify your investment portfolio while benefiting the planet? The Accelerate Carbon Negative Bitcoin ETF, symbol ABTC on the Toronto Stock Exchange, provides investors with exposure to Bitcoin while protecting the environment. Accelerate implements a global tree planting campaign to sequester carbon emissions and help fight climate change. Up to 10% of ABTC's 69 basis point management fee will be allocated to Accelerate's annual tree planting campaign. For each $1,000 invested in ABTC, an estimated one net ton of carbon dioxide is expected to be sequestered each year. Buy Bitcoin, save the planet. Find out more at investabtc.com. So what you're what you're really dealing with a lot is in terms of your data sets is information is asymmetry where you know it's it's just very unclear what what with regards to the regulations, the the connection between, as you had mentioned, local, federal, um, and and state governments even. Are are you getting a lot of pushback from consultants and lawyers that may have um, a lot of expertise within a particular niche that they're kind of pushing back against this kind of all-in-one data pro- provider um, that that's using AI. Is that something you're seeing pushback from? No, and, and actually, in, in actuality, we have a large number of those folks who are customers of ours, right? Because um, it actually automates um, a large chunk of the um, grunt work, if you will, that they do, which is, um, you know, I, I expect that our customers um, will be better experts than us at individual policies, but that doesn't mean that they still don't have to do the grunt work of, you know, finding the needle in the haystack and finding this legislation or reading this regulatory text or whatnot. And to the, so to the extent that we can automate some of those workflows and create those opportunities for them to be able to think about more strategic things, um, that's really, you know, what we're focused on. And, and, uh, you know, that we have a great relationship with a lot of service providers who do that for, on behalf of themselves, but also on behalf of their clients. Tim, Tim, you did mention 
some growth opportunities and the consolidation opportunity within your sector. I was wondering if you could talk about your biggest growth opportunities on a go-forward basis for fiscal note in addition to your approach to mergers and acquisitions. So uh, thematically speaking, uh, you know, fiscal note is really chasing after uh, what we call regulated sectors of the future. So these are sectors where we believe there to be a high level of regulatory activity, um, uncertainty. Uh, and, you know, if you open up the Wall Street Journal or Bloomberg and you see every morning it's, you know, SEC comes out with new guidance about cryptocurrencies, or EPA <laughs> yeah. guidance for not, you know, uh, sustainability reporting or, you know, Department of Labor, you know, set to issue new requirements around gig economy workers or something, right? So there's a lot of regulatory activity going on. And we see uh, ourselves as really being able to navigate those particular challenges very uniquely for our customers. So we've essentially identified a number of kind of industry-based uh, uh, sectors of the future uh, where we expect there to be a large number of activity. Um, you know, I just listed out a few, you know, others include autonomous vehicles, electric vehicles, which large, to a large extent are still being subsidized by the federal government and will continue to be subsidized by the federal government. Um, so these are areas where markets will entirely move based off the whims of regulators. And uh, our expectation is that we should be able to interpret that for our clients. So that's the thematic ap- approach to growth. I think at a tactical level, um, you know, uh, let's talk about some organic versus inorganic. Organically speaking, um, uh, at a tactical level, we are no different from any other subscription business, right? So uh, how do we grow our customer? How do we grow our revenues? We grow the number of customers that we have, and we sell more stuff to our existing customers. That's that's pretty much it. <laughs> so you know, we can talk about the individual strategies. You know, going into Europe and Asia, and after different customer segments, and you know, cross-selling incremental new products and, and things like that. But fundamentally, it comes down to getting more customers and selling our existing customers more things. So uh, you know, how do we do that? Uh, we expand the sales capacity, the marketing capacity. Uh, you know, of our business by, you know, using the proceeds, for instance, of some of the uh, the merger component here, uh, but also being able to, uh, you know, continuously innovate in the market, right? So the more uh, data sets, the more modules that we add, we have a broader product portfolio for us to be able to sell more stuff to our customers and expand the, the relationships that we have with new customers that are coming in. Uh, on the M&A front, um, you know, we are a very uh, acquisitive company, and I think we will continue to be. You know, our primary focus is on finding um really interesting bolt-on businesses that accelerate uh, a new data set, uh, a new workflow capability. Um, yeah, as an example, uh, you know, two, two companies I'll just list out. Uh, very recently, we bought a company called Oxford Analytica at the beginning of this year, um, which is a, uh, uh, a content information provider specifically focused around uh, emerging markets. So Latin America, uh, uh, you know, Sub-Saharan Africa, Southeast Asia. Um, the ability for us to be able to add those data sets um, to our platform was, you know, obviously uh, game changing, right? In the ability to be able to expand the coverage that we have. Timebase is another example. We bought a Australian legislative and regulatory business um, that gave us uh, deep levels of information into the Australian market. Uh, for to the extent that customers have exposure in Australia, uh, we can essentially now upsell them this incremental data set. Uh, we bought uh, a company called Equilibrium, which is a bolt-on carbon emissions and sustainability reporting tool for uh, uh, ESG providers and uh, for investor relations professionals. So to the extent that the SEC or uh, uh, institutional investors are asking for uh, carbon emissions data, we can actually now supply you with the workflow tool um, that enables you to be able to uh, you know, take those measurements and, and supply those out. And so 
I think that we're constantly on the hunt for these uh, bolt-on products where we can just keep adding them on and then take them to our thousands and thousands of customers um, and be able to cross-sell and upsell those, those capabilities. Um, and, you know, I will say that, um, uh, you know, we have a very deep pipeline. Uh, you know, we were expecting and forecasting um, that even as we go into 2022, that we're going to be pushing north, uh, almost 40 million bucks of top-line revenue growth just by these bolt-on acquisitions um, that we continue to kind of grab uh, as we grow our business here. Yeah, I did notice historically you have been a very acquisitive company in getting into this going public transaction merger with SPAC Duddle Street acquisition. I assume that will just further accelerate that M&A strategy given you'll now have publicly traded uh, paper that you can utilize for these uh, M&A trades. But aside from the ability to further facilitate acquisitions, what was the idea behind going public via SPAC and what made Duddle the ideal SPAC partner? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, so, you know, like many other late stage venture back businesses, we evaluated a bunch of different opportunities to go public. Uh, we looked at a traditional IPO route. Uh, we looked at the SPAC route. Uh, we probably talked to uh, a number of different players uh, in the SPAC space. Um, and, you know, I think number one, you know, we felt like um, given the strategy that we have as a company, uh, the opportunity to access um, long-term permanent capital uh, combined with a tradable currency for further M&A uh, was really compelling. Um, as a private company, that's very hard. Uh, you have a lot. I mean, the, the private capital markets right now are very active, but um, institutionally speaking, there's still a lot of friction to raise mm-hmm. private capital. Uh, uh, you know, There's months of diligence and rounds and rounds of meetings and, you know, just it just takes a very long amount of time. So um, given the, the fast-paced strategy that we have, uh, you know, that combined with an M&A-oriented strategy really focused on bolt-on uh, transactions, it's very hard to do high-velocity, high-capital-related transactions in the private markets. So uh, we made the decision to go public. Um, and as we were evaluating these different approaches, um, Duddle Street uh, really stood out on top. And uh, the reason why is because of two reasons. The, the first is, um, as you might have read in the press release, uh, you know the the SPAC sponsor is backstopping uh, the entirety of the trust account. Yeah. Uh, that is extremely rare, as you both know, in the SPAC world, um, for uh, a SPAC sponsor to provide 100% certainty uh, of proceeds in the trust account. So, you know, here are the things that I don't have to worry about. Right, I don't have to worry about uh, uh, redemptions. Um, you know, I, 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 can, uh, I, I can plan 2022, 2023 pretty easily because I know how much capital is becoming into the business. Um, and, you know, it's, it's effectively a fully underwritten going public transaction. The second thing is that not only was the sponsor going to backstop the trust account, but they were going to anchor the pipe. Um, mm-hmm. And so a lot of the, the SPAC transactions that are happening right now um, that are going through the DSPAC uh, process. Um, you know, obviously, I think many people know that the pipe market has been very tough. Yeah. Um, uh, and that's why we've seen a little bit of a slowdown in terms of the number of deal announcements. Uh, but the, uh, the, the messaging that comes from um, the sponsor here is basically, we believe in this company so much um, that not only are we, willing to, are we willing to backstop the entirety of the trust account, but we're going to be the first money in, in the pipe. Um, and I think that, uh, uh, you know, that's, that, that does two things. Right? Number one is, you know, that's extremely strong signaling to the market. Oh, for sure. Uh, in terms of, 
you know, the, the certainty of the transaction closing, you know, to the management team to be able to do the planning. Uh, but secondarily, uh, you know, uh, it, the, the benefits over a traditional IPO process uh, in that type of structure are very obvious, right? You have a, you have a set price, uh, certainty of closing, certainty of proceeds, um, and that's well worth, um, you know, the incremental dilution that might happen from the promoter from some of the other components of the transaction. Yeah, that's a great point, being certainty of the cash on hand, because, you know, redemptions have been pretty significant. So I can see the appeal of a very strong sponsor, SPAC partner, that can backstop that such that you know that this will come with the, I believe, $275 million in gross proceeds. So speaking of that, what do you plan on using this capital for? Well, the primary use of the, the capital effectively is, um, I think, you know, to effectuate the growth strategy of the business, right? So, um, you know, a lot of the things that we just talked about in terms of getting more customers, selling more to existing customers, um, and of course, uh, the M&A strategy that we've laid out in terms of consolidating big chunks of the market, um, you know, we, we believe that the use of the proceeds effectively to be able to uh, enact that strategy um, in, in terms of our long-term growth plan, getting to you know, almost 400 million in revenues over the course of the next couple of years um, is very, very possible. So, you know, it's what I tell a lot of our, uh, our employees internally, which is that, you know, going public, uh, particularly in this way, is definitely a great milestone. But uh, candidly, uh, you know, a lot of businesses, uh, a lot of their growth, um, you know, has really come from, uh, you know, the post-IPO, post-DSPAC uh, process, right? Um, a lot of the growth in terms of the appreciation of the stock and um, the growth of business has come in the public markets. And we expect that a lot of that will also happen for, for our business as well. And now, a word from our sponsor, Accelerate, one of Canada's most innovative and fastest-growing alternative investment solution providers. With a suite of institutional-caliber alternative ETFs for investors seeking diversification and long-term performance, the Accelerate Arbitrage Fund, symbol ARB on the TSX, is the world's first SPAC-focused ETF with a diversified portfolio of SPAC and merger arbitrage opportunities in an easy-to-use, low-cost ETF. The Accelerate Arbitrage Fund ETF trades under the symbol ARB on the Toronto Stock Exchange. Find out more at accelerateshares.com. So you also have some pretty high-profile early investors with Mark Cuban, uh, Jerry Yang, Steve Case. Can you talk a little bit about the experience of raising that early capital for your company? As we do have a lot of investors that listen to the podcast, but also a lot of a lot of founders that maybe maybe going through that process themselves. Yeah, you know, I think um, this just speaks to maybe the the hustle of, of this management team. Um, but you know, we met Mark through a cold email. I literally went on Google, found his email address on Google. <laughs> I shot him a cold email and. He responded in a couple minutes, and, and that was it. He was the first check-in. Uh, same thing goes for Jerry. You know, we met almost randomly, but uh, you know, I think that you know, one of the things that's that is really interesting to me as a now as a late stage founder is that I think that um, you know, people you shouldn't chase investment as a, as an early stage founder. You should try and build a sustainable and great business. And the the reality is that if you build a great company um, with great unit economics and great customer base and a great product investors will be knocking down the door to try and get into your company. Um, so you shouldn't try and build a business to you know, try and get capital. You should try and build a great company. And I think um, you know, a, lot of, a lot of benefit comes from that. But to your, your other question on the experience of working with these investors, um, you know, I, I, I think that we have been really blessed to be working with 
a lot of investors who saw our vision really early on. And one of the interesting things about our company, and I'll say this um, uh, because I, you know, advise a lot of businesses and have invested in a lot of companies as well, um, is that we've never pivoted our mission and mm-hmm. we've never pivoted, pivoted our product. From day one, you know, we wanted to build a technology platform that aggregated laws and regulations and that we sold on a subscription basis. That business has never pivoted from day one. And so um, I think that, you know, uh, a lot of our investors who've been along with, uh, with us for the ride um, have really been so supportive of that vision and continue to be supportive in this transaction where, you know, they're rolling 100% of their equity proceeds into the public markets with zero secondary uh, because they believe um, that the company can, you know, continue the pathway that we've been on over the course of the next couple of years or so. And with respect to that, what's some of the feedback that you've received from investors on this uh, recent agreement to go public? Uh, well, I mean, I think everyone's very excited. Uh, they're excited that we're you know, able to get into the public markets and you know, effectuate our strategy. I think um, you know, as, a, as a private company, we've been very active. Uh, you know, we've raised a lot of capital. You know, we have uh, conducted a lot of m transactions. Um, and and yeah, I think as you get larger, it just gets harder and harder to um, you know, continue to enact the strategy that we have. Um, that being said, I mean, our, our mission and vision are still the same. Uh, we still want to keep aggregating more and more laws and regulations, and we want to make them useful for our customers. And, you know, you look at the market right now and you see, you know, uh, a lot of companies like uh, Apple Air in the tax space or Thomson Reuters in the legal space and, you know, uh, S&P uh, now merging with IHS market, you know, in the financial information space. These companies are 20, 50, $100 billion market cap businesses. Um, and, you know, I think that we see a similar opportunity to build a large business of scale. Um, and really, it's just a question of, of um, uh, how we get there. You know, our business is not a, we're not a transactional business, right? I mean, I don't worry tomorrow that something bad will happen and, you know, my revenues will fall off a cliff. Um, I know every single year, you know, thousands of thousands of customers renew every single year. Um, that compounds over and over and over again. And it's basically, it's inevitable, um, you know, that we'll effectively get to uh, a large point as long as we continue to, uh, you know, uh, have great relationships with customers, uh, build a great product, uh, keep our retention rates high and continue to innovate um, that, you know, it's it's kind of inevitable that we'll get to uh, a business of significant scale. Makes a lot of sense. And I like the analogy of being the Bloomberg of government information. I mean, that uh, certainly has appeal for investors and to the extent investors are interested. So the SPAC currently trades under the ticker symbol DSAC. And when the business combination completes, as expected in the first quarter of 2022, your new ticker will be NOTE Note. So that's a good one. Easy to remember, Tim. Thanks so much for coming on the show today. Super exciting stuff. And congrats on all that you've built. Yeah, thanks for having me. And inspiring entrepreneurs with, uh, it's actually possible, a cold email to Mark Cuban and then get him as an investor. I'm sure he'll be receiving a number of emails after this one. But thanks so much and take care. Wish you the best of luck. Bye. Bye, everyone. 
Thanks for tuning in to the Absolute Return Podcast. This episode was brought to you by Accelerate Financial Technologies. Accelerate, because performance matters. Find out more at accelerateshares.com. The views expressed in this podcast are the personal views of the participants and do not reflect the views of Accelerate. No aspect of this podcast constitutes investment, legal, or tax advice. Opinions expressed in this podcast should not be viewed as a recommendation or solicitation of an offer to buy or sell any securities or investment strategies. The information and opinions in this podcast are based on current market conditions and may fluctuate and change in the future. No representation or warranty, expressed or implied, is made on behalf of Accelerate. As to the accuracy or completeness of the information contained in this podcast. Accelerate does not accept any liability for any direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage suffered by any person as a result of relying on all or any part of this podcast, and any liability is expressly disclaimed.